Well, what a beautiful day to be together and to worship the Lord. And uh, this morning, we are going to be finishing up our study in the book of Esther. Uh, but before we do, didn't the students do a wonderful job last weekend with the student-led service? Amen. That was such a blessing. I got a lot out of it. It, it really just uh, encouraged and, and ministered to my soul. And I heard that from many people. And at the same time, it ministered to these students as they really saw how they are a part of the church body. And they got to experience God working through them. And it was just such a joy from the greeters to the ushers to the, the worship leaders to the teaching. It was just really good. And so I'm thankful to Pastor Dan, to Deborah, to the other leaders and, and all of the students who did that. I'll be looking forward to the next time that they do. So to keep up, I, I think I'm going to have to stop tucking in my shirt maybe and kind of get with it, this younger crowd. Uh, well, this morning, it is my plan to finish the book of Esther. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss teaching in Esther. I just really enjoyed digging into this study. Um, no archaeological pun there, but, but we will. I've enjoyed the archaeology too. Um, but beginning next Sunday, while I'm on sabbatical, Pastor Dan's going to be going through a short series in Romans chapter 12. And he's going to be looking at what true spirituality looks like in our day and age. It's going to be a great study. And uh, we'll be catching that uh, from wherever we are around the world. We're going to be listening in and very much looking forward to it. Uh, but this morning, we are in Esther. This will be our eighth and final message. And I've listed each of them here. We're not going to do a recap of all of them. I've been trying each week to kind of reset the stage. But I'll just say this. If you didn't, weren't here for the beginning or if you missed any part of it, you can find all of them online on our website, www.rccstc.org. And when you go there, go to the Messages tab. And you'll get a whole list. Now, you can also select those by series. They're by default. They're in date range. But you can go there and you'll find the, the video, the audio. And if you go over to the little download tab, you'll even find a PDF of the PowerPoint. And you'll find Encore, which is our follow-on study guide that allows us to go deeper through application and applying the, the text and the teaching. And on the back of that is Encore Kids. Every week it has a object lesson for the kids and then questions to engage them in that study. So if you're not receiving Encore, some of our Bible studies use this as their curriculum. Uh, some people use it individually. But if you're not getting it and you'd like to, just see Pastor Dan and he will drop it in your inbox every Monday or Tuesday. So, I do want to do a quick recap of just last week, uh, chapter 8. So we can kind of reset where we're going to be this morning. You may remember that Haman, the enemy of the Jews, he was defeated. But there was still this written law that stood against the Jewish people. It was a death sentence. It called for the destruction of all of the Jewish people. 
And it was a law that could not be revoked. It had to be enforced. Now, it could, however, be overwritten, overridden by another law. And Xerxes gave authority to Esther and to Mordecai to do just that. And so a new law was written that would allow the Jews to defend themselves uh, against anyone that might attack them or their children or their property. And so we also saw the enemy hadn't been destroyed yet, but the people were celebrating with great joy. Why? Because their victory was absolutely certain. And so along with this storyline of Esther, we looked at parallels to our own Christian experience. And we saw that our enemy, the devil, has been defeated, but there's still a written law that stands against you and I, the law of sin and death. And it cannot be revoked. It has to be enforced. God fulfilled that law in Christ Jesus by taking that punishment for our sin upon himself. And then he did something really special. He overrode that law with the new law. We call it the new covenant. And that is any who trust in him can receive forgiveness and can have his righteousness credited to us. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. By grace, through faith, we know that is the new covenant. Remember Romans 8 uh, verse 2. Through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. God overwrote the law that stands against us with the new law. And our enemy, the devil, has been defeated, but he's not destroyed yet. Yet, our victory is certain. And so, like the Jews at the time, we can celebrate with great joy. Our worship is celebratory. Because although we still have struggles, we look forward to an absolute certain victory. So there's great parallels between Esther and our own experience. So this leads up to where we are today. And the message title again is Engaging the Enemy. We're going to cover chapter 9 and chapter 10. Chapter 10 is only three verses. So a short two-part outline, deliberation in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 9. And then the celebration will take us through the end of the book. So, and then I'll, I'll also just follow up with a couple quick closing thoughts. So we'll look first at deliberation beginning in chapter 9. So it reads, On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. So just this one verse overview is right up front and then the rest of the chapter digs into the detail but the Jews were scheduled for annihilation and they were and it was an irrevocable law but but what but it says right there but now the tables were turned who turned the tables God did God intervened in human history to accomplish his good purpose. Now, when God did this 900 years earlier, when the, the Jewish nation was enslaved in Egypt, God intervened there. 
And he did it through one miracle after another after another, didn't he? But here in the book of Esther, there's not a single miracle. God intervened in a different way. We call it his providence. And this has been a theme throughout the book. And providence, again, is God working behind the scenes, orchestrating the ordinary things in life to accomplish his extraordinary purpose. He doesn't just do it for the Jewish nation. He didn't just do it back then. He does it right now for you and I. Everything God does is on purpose. Nothing is random. Now, something to note about God's intervention in the, in the, the empire of Persia and, and in this account is that it began at an individual level, right? God first intervened in the life of an orphan girl named Esther, Hadassah. And he orchestrated events so that she rose to become the next queen of Persia. And God intervened in Mordecai's life. He was going to be executed by Haman. But that same day, God turned the tables on Haman. And Haman was executed on the very pole that he set up to execute Mordecai. Haman lost his position of authority. Mordecai was raised up to be the prime minister, the second highest ranking official in the land. So it started on this personal level. God's work on an individual level to bless individuals is not just to bless individuals, though. That's something that we see in this. It is to bless them, but it's not just to bless them. In this case, God had a much greater purpose. And his greater purpose, beyond just blessing Esther and Mordecai, his greater purpose was the deliverance of an entire nation. But that was just a stepping stone. His greater, greater purpose was the salvation of mankind through Jesus Christ, who would come through the line of David, a Jew. So I think we sometimes have too narrow of a view of God's purpose. When he does a work in our individual lives, we might think it's, it was just about me. He blessed me. But it's never just about us. It's part of a greater purpose. God blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others. He uses us in his greater plan. So to be part of God's greater purpose, we don't have to know what all he's doing. We just have to follow obediently, step by step, one step at a time. And here's the thing, it's an act of our will. See, we can refuse to do it. We can refuse to follow God's leading, to follow his will and be a part of this greater purpose. But if we refuse, it's not going to thwart God's plan. He'll raise up somebody else to do it. But we will miss out on the blessing of having been a part of it. This is the thought behind the most well-known verse in all of the book of Esther, chapter 4, verse 14. It was Mordecai speaking to Esther, and he said, for if you remain silent at this time, if you refuse, if you don't follow God's leading, he says, relief and deliverance from the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. We're never going to, we can oppose the will of God, but we're not going to thwart the plan of God. But we want to be a part of it. 
We want to be in the middle of his will. So think about the place where God has you right now. The place in history. The place in your church, your family, your workplace. And pray about, well first think about what God's already done for you personally. And then pray about how does God want to use me for his greater purpose. We need to expand our sights and look at the bigger picture of what God is doing. And he wants to use us in that process. As Nathan said last week, we need to, we need to desire and seek the will of God. He said it's better to be in the will of God and outside our comfort zone than in our comfort zone and outside the will of God. So through some small steps of obedience, the tables were turned. God did the turning, but he used ordinary people who were willing to follow him obediently. So that was the overview. Verse 2 then says... The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those seeking their destruction. No one could stand against him because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was, was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. So we talked about this last time, this fear that overcame the people. It wasn't just a fear of the Jews or just a fear of Mordecai. It was a fear of the God of the Jews. See, the Jewish nation is like no other nation. God raised up a nation from one man, Abraham. And he chose this nation to be a pedestal for the display of his power and his grace and his purpose to all mankind. He, and he promised this in Genesis 12, 3. He promised to bless those who bless Israel and to curse those who curse Israel. So the Persian people, they knew that if they go up against Israel, they're going up against the God of Israel. They were inseparable. Some of the Persian people probably had heard about how God delivered them miraculously out of Egypt, how he conquered the nations before them as he brought them into the land that he promised. But there was actually a much more recent reminder than just that. Only about 50 years before Esther, Darius was the king of Persia. And he planned to set Daniel, a Jewish exile, in a position over the entire empire. But some officials were jealous of Daniel. And so they persuaded King Darius to write an edict. Does that sound familiar? Write an edict that makes it illegal to pray to any god or any person other than to King Darius. And then they caught Daniel praying to the God of all creation. And they drug him before the king. Well, the king had no choice but to enforce the law that he was kind of lured into writing. And it said that anybody that worships anyone else, they're going to be thrown into a den of lions. Darius loved Daniel. He didn't want to do this. But he has no choice so he puts Daniel into this den of lions. And the next morning, he calls out and, and Daniel answers like 
Oh, great king, you know, I'm here. God, God protected me. He rescued him from the lions. And King Darius was elated. And then he wrote an overriding edict. And Daniel chapter 6, beginning in verse 25, says, Then King Darius wrote to all the people, nations, and men of every language throughout the land. And this is what he wrote. He said, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. This went out to everybody from the king of Persia. Gosh, I wish we'd hear something like that coming out of Washington. Wouldn't that be awesome? God changed the heart of King Darius just 50 years before the time of Esther. So the people all over the Persian Empire knew about this decree. They knew about the God of Daniel, the God of Israel. No wonder Haman's advisors and his wife said to him in chapter 6, verse 13, they said, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, that was prophetic, you're going down, buddy, <laughs> because Mordecai is of Jewish origin. You cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. You go up against the Jewish people, you go up against the God of the Jews, the God of Israel. Now, we also mentioned last time that God's purpose in displaying his power is not just to threaten people. It's to point them to the fact that there's a death sentence against them and to make them aware that they can turn to him and receive grace and eternal life. Esther 8.17 said, And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. They remembered and they saw firsthand what God had done for the Jewish people. He saw how he turned their mourning into joyous celebration. They wanted what the Jews had. And so they abandoned their false gods and they turned to the God of Israel. So verse 5 then it says, The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what, please, what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Delphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Adaratho, Parmashto, Arisai, Aridai, and Vazatha. Those are some more great baby names. Um, <laughs> why name your kid Bob or Joe when you could name him Parshandatha or Vazatha? But Verse 10 says, these are the 10 sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now you got to admit, it seems brutal for the Jews to slaughter all of these people. But we saw last time, it wasn't an act of personal vengeance. It was self-defense. Back in chapter 8, verse 11, it says the king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves. 
to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children. It was self-defense. But furthermore, it was an act of God's divine judgment. He was leading them in this battle, and he was empowering them. There is no mention of a single Jew perishing, but yet over 75,000 of their enemies perish. Now again, it may be a little troubling to think of God leading people in the slaughter of anyone. I mean, if that doesn't on some level give you pause, then, I don't know, you might be pretty cold-hearted. But, you have to understand that God is the creator of life. And he has the right to take life away. It's like the father that said to his child, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. <laughs> Don't say that to your kids. I'm not saying that's a good thing to say. But God is the creator of life. Think of it like this. What if you're an artist or an inventor and you create something and you create it for a certain purpose? Maybe you invent something. It doesn't work. It's not fulfilling the purpose for which you planned. Don't you have the right to take it apart, to destroy it, to scrap it? You do. The only reason it exists is because you created it. It's not wrong for God to take human life. But when he does, it is always just. Always just. It is the perfect application of justice. So regardless of how it seems from our human perspective, when God takes a life or gives authority to others to take a life, it is always good and right. It's always just. So, that, but his judgment is just one side of the coin. The other side is his mercy and grace. Whenever someone turns to God, he delivers them. He's not wanting that anyone should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance. The Jews going into the land, remember, they spied it out because they were about to invade it. And the prostitute Rahab said, save me and your family. Put her faith in God. And guess what? He delivered her and her family out of that situation. So, verse 11, the number of those slain in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your position? It will be given to you. What is your request? It will be granted. Sorry, what is your petition? And, and, it, and Esther responds in verse 13, if it pleases the king, Esther answered, Give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they hanged the ten sons of Haman. Now, when you first read that, it sounds like it's some kind of bloodthirsty vengeance that Esther has. She's like, yeah, let's go for more. But that's just not the case. See, there were still more enemies within Susa poised to attack and kill the Jews and their children. And so Esther asks for a little more time. And she also asks that Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. Now, his sons were already dead. 
It said earlier, they were put to death. But the request was for their bodies to be hung in a public display. This was often done to criminals or traitors as a public reminder of the penalty for their crime. Even in Jesus' time, they crucified people on the road coming into the town. So anybody venturing there, uh, it was a caution, a warning. So Haman and his sons were the ringleaders of a plan of genocide. And this was a public display of their punishment. Then in verse 15, the Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar. And they put to death in Susa 300 men. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay hands on the plunder. So, verse 16 speaks of getting relief from their enemies. And it's mentioned again in verse 22. Now, to me... This means there was more going on than just some looming threat against the Jews. It suggests that there was an ongoing persecution of the Jews. In other words, all throughout this 3,300 mile wide kingdom, there were people like Haman that seethed at the sight of a Jew. Remember, he was filled with anger and rage when he saw Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. So there was more going on. Now they couldn't kill them until this edict came out and a date was set and they were ready to go. But leading up to that time, there was probably a lot of persecution against the Jews because it says that they would get relief from their enemies. Anti-Semitism is hostility or prejudice against Jewish people. And it's present even today. You can hear it in the news. One form that it takes is the BDS movement. Have you heard of that? BDS stands for Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions. BDS supporters are seeking to pressure Israel to leave their land by boycotting Israeli goods, Israeli universities, Israeli institutions, by divesting from companies that provide anything necessary to their military or their society, and then urging countries to slap sanctions on Israel. This is like cancel culture on steroids. We're going to shut down those Jewish people, and we're going to do it through boycott, divestment, and sanctions. Israel has been in the crosshairs of the world for nearly 4,000 years. Look what Hitler did just in how many years ago was it? 70 years? Exterminated millions of Jews. So where does this kind of hatred for another race of people come from? I mean, at one level we can say, well, it's our sin nature, and it certainly is. But it's also Satan behind the scenes trying to destroy the nation that God said is his nation, his chosen people, his instrument to bring salvation to the world. So there's a lot going on here. We walked through how many times the, the lineage to the Messiah was down to just one person, but God delivered them. So 
regarding the plunder, the text repeatedly emphasizes that the Jews did not lay their hands on the plunder, even though they had the legal right to do so. It just further shows that they were not acting in vengeance, but in self-defense. So the tables were turned, and the Jews got relief from their enemies. That's the liberation. Let's look at the celebration. It says in verse 17, this happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th. And then on the 15th day, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observed the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Now, we tend to have short memories when it comes to the great things that God has done for us, don't we? Have you found that to be true? Is it just me? It's almost like, what have you done for me lately? You know, like God does, God answers a prayer and does this amazing thing. And then like two days later, we forgot about it and we have our list, our petitions, and we're asking for more. We forget about all that he's already done for us. And so in the Bible, God has prescribed certain celebrations for the Jewish people. There were seven of them and they were all given through the Mosaic law. They were Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles. And the purpose was to remember and celebrate what God had done for them in the past. But there was another purpose that they didn't quite see. And that was, it was going to point forward to history's greatest event. The birth, death, and resurrection of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Incidentally, God has prescribed two such remembrances, celebrations for his New Testament people, his church, right? They look back and they also look forward. Remember what they are? Lord's Supper and baptism. It's a way of remembering what God has done for us in the past and what he has promised to do in the future. So it was in this, this festival now um, that was initiated is known as Purim. And it's a little different. It's the only festival that was not directly initiated by God. It seems to have been initiated by the Jewish people, but it's still an important festival in the life of the Jewish nation. And the importance of it is emphasized here. So verse 20, Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents and food to one another and gifts to the poor. So this beautiful celebration of Purim, it's celebrated on the 14th of Adar 
almost everywhere, but it's celebrated on the 15th in Jerusalem in any walled city because the city of Susa required two days. It was two days of battle and they rested a day later. So the latter celebration is known as, um, they call it Shushan Purim. So you have Purim and Shushan Purim. One is on the 14th and one is on the 15th of Adar. So that's on a different date every year, just like Easter kind of follows a lunar solar cycle. So it falls on a different date each year because of our Gregorian calendar. This year, Purim was on the evening of March 6th to March 7th. And Shushan Purim was on the evening of March 7th to March 8th. So it's in the springtime. Now, the traditional celebration of Purim does just what Mordecai declares here. It involves the reading of the Megla, which is the scroll of Esther, and the giving of food or money to the needy, the sending of gifts of food to friends, and, and then enjoying a festive meal together. Many of them dress up like some of the people in the story. And here you see some Jewish people dressed up for Purim. And so it says then in verse 23, so the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the purr, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. Purim gets its name from the pur, which is like a dice that they cast, and it was a casting of a lot. And it was this method that Haman used to determine the date for the destruction of the Jews. And again, by God's providence, that was 11 months future, and that allowed time for all of these events to unfold, including uh, Esther becoming the queen, Mordecai becoming the prime minister, getting rid of Haman, and then sending out the edict to defend themselves. So it's known as Purim. And it says in verse 25, but when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, these days are called Purim from the word Pur. So 20, continuing in 26, because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these days, these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And the days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of them die out among their descendants. Well, Purim is still celebrated today in Jerusalem, in Israel, and by Jewish people around the world. But just like most Christian holidays, what began as a holy day has kind of been corrupted. It's degenerated over the centuries. Think about our holiday of Christmas. It began as a celebration of the birth of Christ the Messiah. Now it's more focused on Santa Claus and reindeer 
How did we get there? It's become the biggest commercialized thing. But few people, even though Christ is in the name for now, happy holidays, you know, I don't know how long that'll last, or Easter, celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, and now it's rabbits and eggs and baskets. What is with that? Well, in a similar way, the celebration of Purim began as a holy day, but it's become much more secularized. Now it looks a lot like Mardi Gras, actually. People dress up in costumes and masks. Now, that's not wrong necessarily. Some say it alludes to the way God was disguised by natural events. Others say it's, it's based on how Esther masked her Judaism from Xerxes. And there's nothing wrong with dressing up and celebrating. It says it should be a festive occasion. But the original meaning of the holiday, in a large part, has been lost. Along with that, another tradition that's come out of it is that of heavy drinking. This goes all the way back to the 4th century. A rabbi said, one must drink on Purim until that person cannot distinguish between the cursing of Haman and the blessing of Mordecai. <laughs> so it became a, like a slosh fest and a lot of drinking, a lot of drunkenness. But more recently, some are even claiming Purim is an LGBTQ holiday. Listen to this line of reasoning. They say that, that it's about Esther coming out of the closet by identifying her true identity as a Jew despite the risk of persecution and even death. So they celebrate it as a national coming out day. We'll leave it to sinful mankind to find ways to distort and denigrate a holy day. But despite the paganism and some of these celebrations, the fact is it's still celebrated. And to some, it's celebrated faithfully. And it's a testament to the historical account that gave birth to the festival. Purim, just like our, our text says, is celebrated to this very day. So, verse 29. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in 127 provinces of the kingdom of Xerxes. Words of goodwill and assurance to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. Well, Esther is a queen, and Mordecai is now the prime minister, second only to Xerxes, and they had full authority to send this edict out. This one went all across the 3,300 miles, but only to the Jewish people, and it was to enforce this celebration of Purim. And it, and it says that Mordecai sent words of goodwill and assurance to all of the Jews. These people have had like a roller coaster ride, hadn't they? Imagine how good it must have felt when they get this edict from Esther and Mordecai, and it includes words of goodwill and assurance. I mean, it'd just be like a blanket to your soul. <sighs> they must have been so glad that Mordecai was in office. 
take a look at this proverb. I put it up here, Proverbs 29.2. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Should we just all offer up a collective groan? Let's do it. You ready? One, two, three. Ugh. <laughs> I'm not pointing out any one person. They're, they're all over. It, it hurts, doesn't it? We groan. But here the Jewish people had a righteous man second in command. And he sent words of goodwill to them. Well, here's the thing. No matter how bleak the political landscape gets in America, we have to remember that God is still in control. The rulers that exist only exist by God's permission. And he can change things in a moment if he chooses. And if he has ungodly men on the throne of America, guess what? He has a good purpose in it. And we're going to see that. We're going to see that. We have to remember, too, that God hates corruption and injustice. He hates it. And one day, he will do away with it. We can be sure of that. He'll put an end to it. But in the meantime, no matter how dark it gets, the people of God can rejoice and should rejoice. Why? Because the enemy has been defeated. He's not yet destroyed, but he's been defeated. And our victory is certain. We should be joyful. We shouldn't be looking like we were baptized in lemon juice with the scowl on our face. We should be radiant with the joy of new life. Amen? I'm going to work on that. <laughs> Chapter 10. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant charge. This isn't tribute like honoring people. This is taxes. Tribute is taxes. And distant shores literally means coastal lands or islands. It's a way of saying, to the far extent of his kingdom, including the coastal lands and the islands, he imposed his tax. This is how he funded his building projects and his, and his military conquests. Well, here is a stone relief from the east stairway of Xerxes' palace in Persepolis. And it depicts this Ionian delegation bringing tribute in the form of cups and bowls and folded fabric. Guess what? Ionia is a coastal and island region of Greece. And so it is exactly what is mentioned in the text here. And a picture of this, again, this is as close as we get to a 400 BC photograph. And it's pretty cool because we see this taking place. So verse 2 in chapter 10. And all his acts of power and might, together with the full account of the greatness of Mordecai, to which the king had raised him, are they not written in the books of the annals of the king of Media and Persia? Well, from this verse, it's not stated directly, but it strongly implies that Xerxes was dead before the writing of the book of Esther was completed. It's speaking of all of his works, past tense. In fact, Xerxes was assassinated in 465 BC. Get this, by the commander of the royal bodyguard. His name was Artabanus. Now, this is like the secret service designed to protect the king. And the commander, the head of the secret service, 
assassinated him. This, this cuneiform tablet speaks of his assassination. It, it clearly spells it out. I believe it also names, I didn't go to the trouble of translating this myself. <laughs> I started and it was just taking too long. Uh, but it speaks of it being his bodyguard, Artabanus. So this happened about 14 years after Esther became queen, to give you an idea of the timeline. So Artaxerxes was assassinated. Here are the tombs of the four great Persian kings. And they're located in, I hope I get this right, Nakshirastam in Iran. And these tombs, they're more than 70 feet tall from bottom to top, and yet they, they start like 25 feet above the ground. See the little tiny people there? Up close to the tombs, they're huge. Can you imagine chiseling that out of solid stone by hand? And they're very, very detailed. So from left to right, these are the tombs of, of Darius II, which is the grandson of Xerxes, Artaxerxes, which is the son of Xerxes, Darius, which is the father of Xerxes, and then over on the right is Xerxes' tomb itself. And so here's a picture of just Xerxes' tomb. And notice how the entrance of the tomb is broken in? That was probably done when Alexander the Great invaded Persia in the 4th century BC, about 100 years after Xerxes. And they looted all of the palaces and the tombs. Just from the palace in Persepolis, they're reported to have taken 2,500 tons of precious metal. Believe me, they were not like the Jews and leaving their hands off the plunder. They, they raped and pillaged, literally. And um, so that's probably when that was broken into. I've always thought, man, it'd be cool to look inside there. Well, here's an even closer view. Um, and these are engravings in the stone over the tomb of Xerxes. And at top is Xerxes pictured and some, some illustration of him being almost like deity. He's there with the deity. And then there's these 28 guys holding up his throne. And all of them are from different nationalities. Here's an even closer view. And I've listed out the nationalities because they're there. Uh, this is the translation. So all of these kingdoms, what it's saying, it's, it's a testament to the vast empire of Persia that Xerxes ruled over. Now, I, again, I mentioned how the, the tomb is broken. I always thought it'd be cool to like look in there. Uh, well, they began a renovation. They put up scaffolding and began renovating these. They've been hundreds and hundreds, over a thousand years of erosion from sand and wind and, and rain and that. And for the first time ever, the Iranian media published pictures from inside the tomb of Xerxes. And the world got to see what it looks like. I don't have any of them. <laughs> it was a setup. Okay, no, I do. <laughs> They're not the best pictures. I think they took them with the Polaroid. But they say that there's this long tunnel that leads down to the burial chamber. And inside that burial chamber is the tomb of Xerxes. And notice how it's broken in two? Probably by Alexander's men wanting to know if he had any goodies. And he probably did have a lot of gold and bling in there that they took out. And then a closer look, these would be 
the sarcophagi of Xerxes and probably some of his family members. So it's just so cool that we're looking at biblical history. Isn't that awesome? So these tombs should serve as a reminder that even as great as Xerxes was in his enormous empire, where is he now? He's dead. He's dead. The Bible says that death is the destiny of every man and the living should take it to heart. And so take this to heart. <laughs> and it says, what good will it do for man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his very soul? Xerxes had everything you could imagine. I don't know if his heart shifted like Darius toward the God of heaven. I don't know. But he's dead now. So, verse 3 then, the last verse in the book Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. How did, how did Mordecai get to that position? He didn't do it by struggling. I'm going to be, I'm setting my sights on top dog in the land. No, he humbled himself and God lifted him up. Humble yourself in the Lord and God will lift you up. He's obedient to God. Well, I want to consider just two questions as we close out this series. I didn't have time to do, I wanted to do more of a recap, but we had to cover two chapters and my sabbatical starts Friday. <laughs> it was really challenging this week. I mean, I worked hard, but wow, the distractions were many. But, but here's a couple things I want to look at. First, does God still protect the Jews as vigorously and as passionately today as he did back then? Well, when I think about it, in a lot of ways, it doesn't seem so. I mean, especially when you consider what Hitler and others have done, it makes me wonder. Now, perhaps that's because of their rejection of the Jewish Messiah, the Savior, before, remember, before Jesus entered into Jerusalem, he stood on the Mount of Oz and he looked out over the city and he wept. He wept because he saw the destruction that would come upon the Jewish people because they didn't recognize the day of God's coming to them. They've been talking about this Messiah for centuries and here he was. They didn't recognize it. And so... He was looking into the future and he knew that in 70 AD, Titus, the Roman, would come in and decimate Jerusalem and kill many people and take all of the temple implements and destroy the temple. In fact, that's when not a single stone would be left on top of another one. They threw a torch into the temple. It burned. The gold melted down and trickled in between all the stones. And they took it apart stone by stone and scraped out all the gold, fulfilling the prophecy that Jesus said, not one stone will be left on another. He saw that and he wept. So maybe it's because they've rejected, by and large, the Jewish Messiah. Yet, the fact that this tiny nation of Israel exists to this day surrounded by enemies is amazing in and of itself. Rome isn't here anymore, right? They're gone. Persia's gone. Here's little Israel still surviving. Well, some churches teach a view that 
a view of Israel's future that says that the church has replaced Israel and that all the promises God made to Israel are now fulfilled spiritually in the church. So he didn't really, it's like, it depends on what Israel is. <laughs> you know, he didn't really mean Israel, he meant the church. We don't teach that here. That, that, that theology has been labeled replacement theology. We don't teach that at Riverside. We believe strongly that the promises God made to the nation of Israel are irrevocable. And Romans 3 says, in verse 3, will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. So he confirms that these promises will be upheld. And Romans 11 distinguishes clearly between the church and Israel. And it speaks of God's future plans for the restoration of Israel. They are the natural branches that were broken off. Why? So that the wild branches, the Gentiles, could be grafted in. And once that full number of Gentiles comes in, God's attention is going to go back to Israel. And they too will be grafted in more easily than us Gentiles. Because they're a natural branch. So they will be restored. So God has future intentions for the nation of Israel. And then there's a second thing I want to just consider. We love accounts like this, right? Where... God steps in and intervenes and the bad guys lose and the good guys win and where God turns the tables and comes to the rescue of his people. We love accounts like when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea and they made it across on dry land and it swallowed up the Egyptians. We love David and Goliath took that bad guy down with one small stone. Daniel in the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace. We love those kinds of, Paul and Silas in prison and they're praying in an earthquake and the chains come off and the doors open and they're set free. I love that stuff. Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? No one. Yet, there's also times when this doesn't happen and we need to be realistic about this. Think of the death of King Josiah at Megiddo. He was a good guy. He was, he was killed. The stoning of Stephen, the persecution of the early church, including every single apostle except for John. How do you explain things like that? Nero wiped out hundreds of thousands of Christians. He fed them to the lions in a Colosseum in Rome. How do you, how do you explain things like that? And I mean, even today, We've prayed for people and seen them healed in seemingly miraculous ways. And then as elders, we prayed with tears over people and they died. What's up? Is God no longer for them? Why didn't he rescue them like he has others? And perhaps the biggest question, can I really trust God to rescue me? Can I expect that if I'm in prison, there'll be an earthquake and the doors will fly open? Or that armies will come and overthrow my enemies? Or that I'll rise up and overthrow my enemies? Can we really expect that? Is that what we're to take away from this text? Well, God can certainly do that. These are good questions and we should consider them. God can certainly do that. But we have to be careful that we don't get our, our, our perspective turned around. See, there's something we have to consider. And this should really shape how we view these things. It's in Philippians 1. 
And it says, it's Paul, you know these words. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Did you just say that? You did, didn't you? To die is gain. You said it. Do you believe that? That's the truth. Now, it's not wrong to want to survive and live a long life. That is not wrong. To want to protect your family. Life is good. But we have to remember that what lies ahead for a believer is better by far. It doesn't compare. I said before, a good doctor saves you. A bad doctor sends you to heaven. <laughs> Give me a bad doctor. <laughs> Sign me up. God does sometimes provide physical deliverance from physical death and physical persecution. Just like we see here in Esther. But the purpose we don't want to miss is it's meant to point to a far greater spiritual deliverance. Something that's greater, better by far. And so we today even get to see this spiritual deliverance happening all around us. We heard testimonies of it at the baptism service a week ago, two weeks ago. It's happening all around. In fact, tonight we're gathering and we're going to watch the movie The Jesus Revolution because what God put in place, it's still happening. And that is an encouraging story, even if you've already seen it. Come watch it again with a bunch of people who have been saved by the power of God and the Jesus revolution. Amazing. It goes on today. We're going to, in fact, talk with some who were a part of that and impacted by that revolution. God's spiritual deliverance is greater by far, and it goes on today. And all these physical deliverances are to point us to that. We're to keep our eyes on what is unseen. The things that are seen are temporary, they're passing away, but is, what is unseen is eternal. It's not worth comparing. So we want to just make sure that we don't get the wrong idea coming out of Esther. God's great work of delivering his people from death into life continues today. It's a spiritual deliverance. And so on this note, let's just end in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I just so thank you that you preserved this account of Esther for us. With all the historicity there, God, it is an, a true historical account. I thank you for the artifacts that attest to it, that we can see with our own eyes biblical history, that we can see that every single letter of your word is true, God, and it will all be fulfilled. We can also see you working in the lives of people and in nations. And, and at the same time, we see this one overarching purpose. That we might see Jesus, the King of Kings. And that we might be reconciled to you through him. And so God, I thank you for your love. And for your irrevocable promises to us. The new law that overrides the law of sin and death, the law of the spirit of life. If we just turn to you in repentance and faith, God, you will rescue us. You'll rescue us from the dominion of darkness and bring us into the kingdom of your son. Wow, what an amazing, awesome God we serve. And so we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.